ones and we're it's uh, interesting that we've come to a place in Romans uh, as we've come to a place in our country uh, and I think the two uh, overlap that is Romans chapter 11 and 12 or, or rather rather 12 and 13 uh, have to do then with our obligations to one another and to the nation state. Um, and so we've got a new president. What are our obligations? You know, uh, the Bible from start to finish sees the relationship between the church, the covenant community, and the empires of the world as very important. From Egypt in Genesis, Exodus, Assyria, Babylon, Persian, Persia down to Rome in the book of Revelation, the empires rebel against God. The empires hinder the healing vocation that God is working out through his people. The entire Bible could appropriately be read as a kind of manual on how to follow the command of God, the Torah, you know, in the New Testament, the love of God and the love of neighbor, and at the same time negotiate the dynamics of hostility, domination, idolatry, violence, that almost without exception characterize the world's empires. To state it briefly, how are we not to be conformed? And that's, we looked last time, Paul says in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So the exhortation to nonconformity characterizes the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, from God's calling to Abraham, who in Revelation are described as they worshiped, you know, the people of Abraham worshiped neither the beast nor his statue. And of course, that's always the issue, isn't it? Between the nation state and the church. What do we worship? That's the picture in Revelation that many bow their knee to, you know, and of course the imagery in Rome is representative of Caesar Augustus. So following the call to nonconformity, and I believe Paul throughout Romans is going to teach us, throughout this chapter or other, is going to teach us how to do this. How do we not conform? He gives us moral instructions in chapter 12. And then in 13, he's still continuing this subject. And this is really where we're headed. I won't deal with 13 in detail this week. But we're going to have to deal with 13 from the context of 12 and 13 together. Because you know what's coming in chapter 13 is the idea to obey the governmental authorities. But that's not a kind of absolute that's put down in isolation 
from what he's picturing in chapter 12. Uh, in, he speaks mainly to life within the body in chapter 12. So we'll talk about that today in verses 3 to 13. He teaches about the enablement that Christians have to live lives of nonconformity. And this is then connected to suffering love. That is that you love the brethren. We are placed in a community of mutual support where we're given gifts of the Spirit and we're to use these gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. Uh, it's the means by which believers' faith enact their love. I, this morning, this, uh, one of my students sent me an article from Christianity Today, today on shame and honor and it's being discovered what we've known in Japan all along and that is that the way that we're shaped as people is through our desire to be a part of a group you know that's so obvious in Japan that your group identity is really key to your own personal identity uh, the article, though, was saying this has become obvious, though, in the case in everywhere in the United States, especially on the social media, you know, that you want to be part of a particular group. You want to have people like you. Uh, you want people to comment on what you say. Uh, and so the idea is that to be shamed you know, to be cast out of the group in Japan, but also to be shamed on social media has now become, you know, one of the things that can cause people to, to stop. And nonconformity to this world's culture is a very difficult thing if you do not have then something to fall back upon. And the picture then, the way that we're not going to be conformed is not as you know, individuals can we stand up to this thing, but we have an alternative community. Community, and so Paul says in Romans twelve three, for great through the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Here we are. Here's this new community, and the way that nonconformity to the world is going to work, it's going to work in and through this new community. Where is a think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. How do you not conform to the power structures, the principalities and powers of the world? in and through this community, this koinonia fellowship of serving one another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us each. Uh, and we are to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of your faith. If service in serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And perhaps the key verse here, give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in brotherly love. 
There is a picture then here of mutual radical submission. Submission to one another in the body of Christ, as Paul says, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Paul will describe this in Galatians. He says, we've been rescued from this evil age. How are we rescued? How are, because we're called out into these separate communities that is the church. And this is the way we are not conformed, but transformed in and through these new communities. Now that's the first half of Romans 12. The second half is a group of injunctions that applies to the believer's relationship with those outside of the church. This is inclusive of, you know, Paul say, live in harmony in verse 16 with others. In verse 21, overcome evil with good. In chapter 13, verse 8, he'll say, owe no debt but love. Starting in verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. And from there, he's going to move into chapter 13 in his exhortations that involve the governing authorities. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. Um, But understanding 13, 1 to 7, we have to see it as part of the overriding injunction that Paul makes for Christians to live their lives in nonconformity to the old age, to this evil age, and that we are to have lives of suffering love. So Paul's exhortation in 13, 1 to 7 explains how these very members of the church are to subordinate themselves to the state. But that does not manifest the lifestyle. You know, we've already described that in chapter 12 of that lifestyle. Um, Paul's calling for a revolutionary subordination. First of all, in the church to one another, in relation to those outside of the church. But there is a difference between subordination and obedience, right? It's not the same thing. Uh, The term here reflects Paul's notion of the powers that have been established. Subordination is significantly different from unconditional obedience. Are the Christians to worship Caesar as the state commands? Or are the Christians to refuse to worship Caesar, but still permit Caesar to punish them? Are they being subordinate, even though not obeying? Well, of course they are. Think of Christ. Was Christ obedient to Rome? No, he was killed by Rome. He was killed by the principalities and powers. And so what is commanded of us in chapter 13 is not some mindless obedience to the state. If that were the case, we would all bow down and worship Caesar. 
We would obey whatever the state would have us do. What Paul is calling us to, though, is something that's very difficult, even more difficult. He rejects any notion of violent revolution. I think that's the point. The immediate meaning of this text for the Christians, and especially the Christian Jews in Rome, they're facing anti-Semitism. The Jews, the Christians, are being persecuted. Just because of the, you know, Nero is going to burn Rome and he's going to blame it on those Christians. They've already cast out Jews in Rome. And our natural instinct is revolution. And that's precisely what Paul is warning against. The call is to a non-resistant attitude toward a tyrannical government. He has no illusions about Rome being, in a positive sense, a servant of God. But Rome, in its fallenness, nonetheless exists and acts as it acts. We know from biblical stories, though, that God can and does use corrupt nations for God's purposes. Yet these nations also remain under God's judgment. So chapters 12 and 13, I'm trying to give us a big picture. I don't want to isolate 13 from 12. I want to talk about 13 while we're still in chapter 12. Chapter 12 begins with a call to nonconformity, motivated by the mercies of God, and finds the expression of this transformed life in a new quality of relationships in the body of Christ. And a new relationship, even in regard to enemies. We're not to take revenge, but we're to even love the enemy, as Christ said. And this concept of love is going to recur in chapter 13, immediately after the injunction of obedience to the government in 8 to 10. So any inter- interpretation of 13, 1 to 7 that does not also center on persevering and serving love, nonconformity, transformation of the mind, is a misunderstanding of this text. And this text, the reason I'm getting all excited about here, because this is one of the most misunderstood texts in all of Scripture, that people have taken chapter 13, 1-7 of Romans, And said, oh, as Christians, we're to serve the state and state purposes. We're to take up the cross of the nation state and bear it along with the cross of Christ. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying you only bear one cross at a time. You only bear the cross of Christ. You do not bear every little tribe, every little nation, every little state wants you to take up their cross wants you to be obedient in giving your life. Paul is not asking, he's saying, Christians, you conform yourselves to this community of Christ, and that's the the context in which you take up the cross. So owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And this is down in chapter 13. So to understand Romans 13, we have to read 12 and 13 together. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. It's unlikely that Paul thought Christians would accomplish this 
by obeying completely the Roman government and bowing down to Caesar. The same government that is responsible for the death of Christ and is about to behead Paul. Why did they behead him? Because he was so obedient? No, because he refused to bow the knee to Caesar. He refused to obey. Did he, you know, was he subordinate? Yes, he was subordinate. So you can do both. Uh, So we will not resist being conformed simply by being good Americans, voting Republican. But we'll we'll resist being conformed by taking our identity in the church as our prime identity and understanding this is the place that we take up the cross. This is the place that we serve. This is the place that we learn obedience and full obedience. Paul tells us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. He urges the transformation of the mind and then the rest of the chapter tells us. He's explaining, okay, how do you do this? How do you transform your mind? Is it, oh, you've got to concentrate real hard on your own identity? No, it's through this intensified koinonia, this new community. And you have to enter this new community with all your gifts and serve one another. Last week I talked about, you know, how do you transform the mind? Well, Paul talks about two kinds of mind. There's in verse 1, or chapter 1, the worthless mind. They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they came futile in their speculations, in their thinking. They became idolaters. Oh, who's that? That's Rome, right? They're idolaters. The mind is shaped by a community. And if you conform to this community, that's not the mind renewal that Paul is talking about. If we conform to the communities of this world, you can't be transformed. But this transformation will result in an alternative community, an alternative people, an alternative culture, the church. That's what we're about. So above all, what Paul means by transformation, it's not this autonomous, imminent, mystical event. You know, it's all in your head. But it's a process by which the transcendent, eschatological, that is the end time, ecclesiological, the church, is a part of who we are. It's the reality of our salvation. It's the reality that determines our earthly lives as Christians. He's described this already, this transformation in Romans chapter 7 and 8. We shift from living in the body, you know, and serving the flesh to living in the body of Christ. He says in chapter 8, those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. The mind on the flesh is hostile to God. It cannot please God. So part of, you know, he says, you are to be living sacrifices. First of all, that's an, an unusual idea. Most sacrifices are dead, right? And that's really what is usually called for when the nation state or the tribe or, you know, what they want is not living sacrifices. They want dead sacrifices. 
But what gets sacrificed in chapter 12 and in chapter 8 is actually a system of sacrifice itself. What the world would do is to masochistically sacrifice you know, ourselves or other people. The world's built upon sacrificial systems. They may call even for self-sacrifice. But is that the same as what Paul is calling for in Romans 12? Just self-sacrifice? Think here of 1 Corinthians when he talks about love. Even if I commit my body to the flames, that is, I sacrifice myself for other people, and I have not love, this sacrifice is worthless. So he's calling for a very particular kind of sacrificial service for the other. A living sacrifice. Not just any old sacrifice. Following Jesus means we refuse one sort of sacrificial system and we take up another. You know, you could say, well, Cain sacrificed. Yeah, he sacrificed Abel. That's not what we're doing. But as Paul describes... It is this self-sacrificial system. It's not deliverance from the law per se, or simply a deliverance from God's punishment that is talked about. It's deliverance from the bondage of sin and futility inherent in sin. And this is being sacrificed. What's being sacrificed is actually a bad thing, right? Not a good thing. When you sacrifice your life for Christ... Are you sacrificing something good? Or are you sacrificing something that needs to be sacrificed? You're relinquishing something that should be given up. You're giving up a futility, a lie, a false notion. That's sacrifice. That's selfishness. So, the way that's done is through this revolutionary subordination. We've heard this and maybe we don't get that it's revolutionary. But it was certainly was revolutionary for these people to hear, you know, that think here of Philemon, that a slave, Onesimus, is of the same value as his master. Who would have thought? Paul says, treat him like you would treat me, like a brother. So... Paul has been building up to chapter 12 to 13 and 9 to 11. He says that the true kingdom is the church. The true Israel is the church, the true culture, the true people. And then he's laying out these codes of uh, subordination to one another. He does the same thing in the pastoral epistles. Men and women, husbands and wives are to be subordinate to one another. Children are to be respected. That's strange. Children didn't even have the value of personhood. Women are to be respected. Men love your wives as Christ loved. That's strange. Who would have thought? And so the idea is in Galatians that there is no longer Jew nor Gentile, male or female, slave or free, but you've all been called to one body in Christ those systems of oppression and you know uh, the idea of identity in which we would oppress the other, that's undone. So it's not a departure. And what often happens, 
by the time we get to this place in Romans, we think we've departed from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're still doing the Sermon on the Mount. You know, all the blessings there. The turning of the other cheek. That's all still in place. Jesus is a cultural revolutionary. He intervened directly in the socio-political realm of his day. He is speaking the language, not of the existing powers, of how social power, you know, but he's saying how power should operate. It's still political. It's still a kingdom, and he's still a king, but it's reflecting a very different notion of politics. His was a call to social transformation where servanthood replaces domination, where restorative justice replaces retribution, and inclusion of vulnerable people replaces class warfare. Paul does not lead us away from Jesus' messianic ethic. Jesus and Paul are not stage one and stage two of the development of Christian ethics. And that would lead to some sort of Constantinian Christianity in which we imagine that God is working out his purposes in and through the powers of the state. No, God's purposes are worked out in and through the body of Christ. So what is central to Jesus' message remains central for Paul. The ethic of Jesus is the ethic of Paul. And I'm having to say all of that Because the danger is we're going to lose what Jesus said in some way imagining that Paul has made a departure from that. And he has not. It's the same ethic. So our most radical task, our most subversive task is to live visibly as communities where the enmity that had driven Paul to murderous violence himself as a zealot would be overcome, where Jew and Gentile would be joined together in one fellowship as a witness to genuine peace in a violent world. One of the ways that Paul is misconstrued is the use of the term justification. I believe this chapter is about justification. I say the word justification, your eyes kind of glaze over and you're thinking, oh, I wonder what's for lunch. But the word is an interesting word if we can bring it back down to earth. All Paul means by justification is what he's describing in chapter 12. He's going to make things right. God's making things right. So the way that the Christian tradition has built up a tension between Jesus and Paul is understanding justification uh, is some sort of personal justification of the individual you know through uh, uh, before God even if Jesus himself taught and practiced a countercultural social ethics according to this mainstream understanding uh, this has no no relevance any longer we don't do that sort of thing I'm, this is the wrong understanding Paul understood that well and what he's saying in this misunderstanding is that justification is by faith alone apart from works righteousness. That should ring almost like it's from the Bible. That's out of Martin Luther. 
And what he's describing then is something very different than what Paul is doing. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. For Paul, justification has as its heart, at its heart social concerns. The basic heresy Paul exposed was the failure of his Jewish Christian opponents to recognize that since the Messiah had come, the covenant of God had been opened to include the Gentiles. That's a social concern, right? Jews and Gentiles, they should eat together. They should worship together. So the heart of Paul's interest had to do with the social character of this new messianic community that we call the church. Justification is all about socialization. Justification is all about, you know, the community of love. Another important way that Jesus' messianic ethic has been marginalized in the history of Christianity is the assumption that he did not give us a social philosophy, but rather only spoke about an interior, personal realm. And Paul has been understood as providing a way of applying Jesus' ethic, you know, instead of to our social lives, to our... But that's precisely wrong. Think here what he's describing, this revolutionary subordination that is going to create an alternative kind of community in which we can be transformed, our minds can be transformed. We are free in Christ and we are called to love even our enemies. In this love we refrain, it's true, from smashing existing social arrangements. I don't think we're going to go out and hand out the machine guns and you know take over. That's not what the church is about. Paul's depiction of the body of Christ and our participation in it is best seen as part of his thinking on the process of negotiating this liberation path through love. It's not a path that's without tension with the governing authorities, with the enemies. Um, But submission is not simply a one-way street. In Paul's community, you know, love communities, the the church, uh, husbands are to be subordinate to wives and wives are to be subordinate. Masters are to respect slaves and slaves, it's a mutual subordination. Parents are to practice a mutuality with their children. They're not to provoke them. Let love be without hypocrisy, Paul says. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. This subordination, of course, is best defined by Jesus, best illustrated. Who, according to Paul in the Philippians, he was subordinated himself for our sake and gave himself for for us he says in Philippians 2.5, Believers should let this same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself a servant. Right? That's the transformation of the mind that Paul is talking. So, the liberation that Christ is bringing is a real world liberation from bondage. 
And we want to act in obedience with this radical shift. But precisely because of Christ, we shall not impose this shift violently upon other people, upon the social order. But in the church, Paul says, we will do this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. But in the church, every Christian has the right to challenge his fellow Christians, husbands, parents, slaveholders, to relinquish their dominance over others. Paul says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. So this mutual subordination among the Christians in Rome is the way in which Paul's powerful theology of justification is being worked out. By the time we get to the end of the book, the important Uh, the crucial importance to the Roman Christians of loving one another, refraining from judging each other, avoiding making one another stumble, pleasing others and not yourself, recognizing that the gospel is for all people, Jews and Gentiles. This is the revolution against Rome's hegemony. The revolutionary means he advocates are consistent with the healing mercy of God extended to the entire world. The certainty Paul has in the world-transforming efficacy of God's healing mercy undergirds uh, the patient love extended even toward enemies. So never pay back for evil for evil, Paul says. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Christian opponents to pat, or, or uh, opponents of pacifism are going to cite Romans thirteen one to seven more than any other biblical text to support the legitimacy of violence. And this text has been used by many Christians throughout history to support the idea that Christians owe their government a violent allegiance even to the point of obeying the state when it says we should go fight and kill people in other countries. While we're still in 12, then we have to keep in mind how do we account, you know, this this revolutionary subordination is what he's describing still in in chapter 13. Um, And this then will create the non-conformity. There's one side note I want to deal with here. And this is kind of a footnote, if you can think in terms of a footnote. At the end of this chapter, Paul says, Be devoted to one another in brother love, give preference, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. And then this phrase, For in so doing... You will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, I think we get the point of the passage, even if we may misunderstand, the heap burning coals on his head. Are we to heap burning coals on his head to make it even worse for him in the judgment? Is that Paul's point here? I think that's the way we often hear this. Uh, But it's an idiom that we we think is from Egypt. And the best way to turn an enemy into a friend is the Christian's 
you know, response. Burning coals represents shame at one's improper actions, which are revealed in light of another's love and forgiveness. Think of when you're ashamed, your face turns red as if you have burning coals on your head. Uh, I don't think the idea is be kind to other people so they'll suffer more in hell. Uh, that's not the point that Paul is making. Paul is saying be kind to your enemies because that will in fact make them your friends. That will be a means of calling them to Christ. Uh, do not overcome evil with evil. Uh, our response to unfair treatment is to be on the level of peace and not to get caught up in revenge. Because that's who God is. God is a merciful God. He's a redemptive God. So, let me summarize and conclude. Do not be conformed to this world. Paul has said, said the same thing in, for the Jews and in uh, Galatians. They must be joined together in one fellowship. Same argument. How do you not be conformed to the world? Because you're joined together in an alternative fellowship that is itself nonconformist. To be justified is to be set right in and for that new social relationship. And justification links with making peace in the dividing wall of hostility between us has been broken down in Ephesians. So Paul's letter is emphasizing the social nature of this justification. Uh, Paul cares so much about human beings being acceptable to God, but it's an acceptability in an immediate, concrete situation, a Roman situation in which Jew and Gentile, legalistic Christian and pagan Christian needed to accept one another. They need to be free from the powers of idolatry. This is thematic. They are to live out lives of freedom, nonconformity to the Roman world, fueled by minds that are transformed, being shaped by God's mercy, shown in this alternative culture, shown in humility and shared respect in the ministry of faith that recognizes and affirms all the gifts of the community. We are to have active love for one another, leading to a renunciation of vengeance. You know, violence is not an easy thing to get rid of in your life. We have to practice this thing. We have to do it together. But we overcome evil with good rather than heightening the spiral of violence. We respect for, have respect for God's ordering work. Yes, God may be working in human governments. But these governments need to be seen as the fallen and rebellious principalities and powers. But God still can use them for his purposes. There is a commitment to doing good, following Jesus. Repudiation of temptations to seek to overcome evil with evil. So, do not be conformed. Be transformed in and through the radical command of love of neighbor love of God. That, I think, is the summation of Romans 12, but also of Romans 13. Let's sing our hymn.